Well, thank you so much, Jesse, and to the rest of uh, the Zoe family. It really is a privilege, and uh, anytime I get a chance to, to open up God's Word on a Sunday morning with churches, I realize what uh, a privilege and an honor it is for a pastor to, to share the pulpit. And so uh, I really am humbled by the invitation and, and humbled to, to come alongside all of you and to learn as we open up God's Word. So uh, would you pray with me? Lord, we, we want to learn today. Lord, we want to be edified. Lord, not by something that uh, I have to say, but Lord, as you minister the Word through your Spirit, Help us, and we ask this in Christ's name, amen. Well, let me ask you a big, big question, a big question. If I were to ask you, what is the most important ingredient for a relationship? What's the most important ingredient for a friendship, a friendship to flourish, or for those of you who are married, what is the secret sauce or the secret ingredient, as it were, uh, for marriages or friendships or for relationships? I do a lot of work on relationships, and so when I see articles or things of that nature come out promising, we found the secret ingredient, it always piques my interest. Recently, I was reading a magazine, and on the headline, it said, The Secret to Having a Happy Marriage, and I had to read it. And in the article, in the magazine, they interview couples from all different walks of life, all different stages, those who had been married six months, those who had been married uh, 16 years, and so on. And they said, what is the secret to your marriage? What is it that keeps it going, that keeps this relationship alive? And I thought I'd just kind of share with you, right? Because if we all want to know what the secret ingredient is to relationships, then in some ways, right, our ears are perked up. Here's what some of the advice came in. Uh, get your spouse to make you a smoothie every single morning. Pick up their favorite cookies for them on the weekend. Uh, learn how to say thank you when they put their clothes in the laundry. Uh, take alone days so that you have time by yourself. Never fight over money. And then my favorite at the end was a couple that said, make sure you keep a box of matches in the bathroom. So, right, while all of those might be somewhat funny and humorous and maybe even somewhat inane, they oftentimes, right, as we hear them, they belie a sense, I think, of hopelessness when it comes to marriage and relationships in terms of what makes it work. Because we all know, right, that on any given day in our relationship, we we don't want to make smoothies for our loved one. We don't want to go down the street and, and buy cookies for our loved one. And there are times, right, where we don't want to say thank you or we're irritated and we're tired and we're frustrated. And what we all inherently realize, I think, in those moments is there has to be something more sane and something uh, more sturdy that lies outside of us that calls us to a relationship other than these things, which brings me to what I really think is the key ingredient. So you guys lucked out today. Today we're going to talk about what is the most important ingredient that makes, I would say, not only marriage work, but really any relationship work, and that's biblical forgiveness. I think forgiveness is the thing that makes relationships work. Now, when we talk about forgiveness, I think so much of the work that we have to do on a topic like this is we have to begin to pick apart and to some degree deconstruct the bad theology that comes alongside with forgiveness, right? We all have certain things that we think we know about. We have certain uh, principles that we think we know when it comes to forgiveness. But oftentimes what I find in both counseling and in conversations is that we oftentimes allow the wisdom of the world to shape what our understanding of forgiveness is rather than Scripture. So 
here's what we're going to do. You can bear with me in the beginning. What I want to do is I want to spend just a brief amount of time just unpacking together maybe eight common myths that we all tend to have as it relates to forgiveness. Maybe eight things, eight maxims, myths, whatever you want to call them as it relates to forgiveness that oftentimes we just believe. We make a part of our theology. And then what we'll do after we deconstruct those myths is we want to go to something that can help us construct a better theology. And of course, that'll be scripture itself. So here we go. Number one, and these are all myths I would say that I've just learned in counseling experience and talking to couples over uh, nearly two decades of ministry. Here's the first myth. Uh, I just don't need to forgive to have good relationships. I don't need to forgive, or maybe a simpler way to put it would simply be this. Uh, forgiveness is just optional. Nobody has to forgive to make a relationship work. Recently, I was talking to a wife in counseling, and her and her husband have been having issues in their relationship, and uh, he's quite irritating and can get on her nerves. And she said, you know what? She goes, I think what I'm going to do is she's like, I'm just going to let everything slide off my back. When he does something annoying or when he doesn't put his laundry in the laundry basket or when he forgets to uh, pick something up from the store that I told him to do, I'm just going to, you know, let it just roll off my back like water off a duck's back, right? And I said, okay, I just nodded, right? Okay, well, We'll see how that works. And she came in two weeks later and I said, well, how's that working for you? Right? How is that working for you? And she said, it's, it's horrible. She's like, I'm more irritated. I'm more frustrated. And I'm just trying to hold it in and nothing is rolling off my back. And my back's actually quite heavy right now. Right? And the whole point of that is, right, when we try to mend relationships and repair relationships, when bad things happen on our own, apart from Christ, right? we end up oftentimes, I find, being more miserable than we began, right? I understood to some degree her recent resolution, but it did nothing to actually mend and reconcile and repair her relationship. Why? Because forgiveness isn't optional. It is something, as we'll see later, that God calls all of us to. Here's the second myth that we have to deconstruct, and it's this, is that apologizing. Apologizing is the same thing as asking for forgiveness. And I would say in my experience, and I would even confess to you, even in my own marriage, uh, this is one of the most common and insidious myths as it relates to forgiveness. The language of I'm sorry is probably quite common in many of our relationships today. But what I would want to tell you is that language, friends, is nowhere in the Bible. Right? You will nowhere in Scripture see that when sin happens in relationship, when we sin against our brother or sister, when we're inconsiderate with a brother or sister or a spouse, that we're simply to apologize or to say, I'm sorry. Right? The problem with apologizing is that it's not a biblical concept. Oftentimes when I talk to couples about how they resolve conflict, they'll simply say, well, we just say, I'm sorry, right? I'm sorry that that happened to you. But what we all know is that there's something about the human heart that can't help but take something like an apology and immediately move it into some type of blame shifting, right? Well, I'm just sorry that you're not strong enough to take this criticism. Or, you know, I'm just sorry that you're just so sensitive, you know, and you can't handle this, right? There's, there's something about our human nature, right? That even when we are trying to do something good, right? There's something in our, in our hearts that oftentimes can turn it the other way, right? The language of apologizing is just not biblical. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 3.13. He says, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. 
right? It doesn't say, hey, uh, when something happens in your relationship, if you, if you have things that you need to bear with each other on, just, just say, I'm sorry, right? Just say, I'm sorry and, and move forward. No, Paul says, no, here's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to forgive as the Lord forgave you, right? Here's, here's something that convicts me this morning, I know, and something that might offer conviction or opportunity for you. Just ask yourself, when was the last time you asked someone to forgive you? And then maybe then trace back in your memory, when was the last time you said, I'm sorry, right? Because so often than not, we let I'm sorry or apologies stand in for forgiveness. And when we do that, friends, as we'll see a little bit later, we miss such an important opportunity to live out the gospel. Third myth, third myth, not only is forgiveness not optional, not only is apologizing not the same thing as forgiveness, but third, uh, we oftentimes think that forgiving means forgetting. Forgiving means forgiveness. Forgiveness oftentimes gets equated with forgetting. And so what can happen here, right, in relationships is that husbands and wives or moms and their daughters or cousins or sisters, brothers, whatever it is, in whatever context or relationship, when sin enters into it, we say, well, I just can't forget that. And if I can't forget it, right, then I can't forgive it. The problem with this, like so many others, is that it's just not grounded in Scripture, Right? If our forgiveness is to embody and to exemplify God's forgiveness to us through Christ, then we see that, that Christ never forgets our sins, right? He never forgets our sins, but as we've already sung and as we've already read from Psalm 103, what we do see the movement in Scripture is that Christ does something else with our sins. He chooses not to remember, right? That's a big difference than forgetting, right? Forgetting, right, connotes and denotes some type of uh, cognitive loss of information, which we all realize that for many of us, we can't just forget wrongs that are done against us. But what we do realize is that as we move into Scripture's model, there's, there's something fundamentally different between forgetting and actively choosing not to remember. And, and here Scripture and Scripture's riches open up to us metaphor after metaphor of how this is done. Right? As we've already read in Psalm 103, verse 12, we're told that as far as the east is from the west, so far does God remove our transgressions from us. In Micah 7.19, we're told that God cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. In Isaiah 38.17, we're told that God takes our sins and he puts them behind his back. We're told in Isaiah 43, 25, it says, I, even I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and who will remember your sins no more. And this gets repeated then in the promises of a new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 34, where Jeremiah says, for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. So if for you, you have equated forgiving with forgetting, and you might say to yourself, well, I just can't forget all of the bad things that that, that person's done to me. I can't forget all of those horrible things that my mother has said to me growing up. I can't forget all of those hurtful things that my employer has done to me. And because I can't forget them, then I can't forgive them. Well, then, friend, we we have to listen to Scripture and allow Scripture to begin to shape our thoughts and behaviors. Number four, a similar myth, I need to learn to forgive myself. I hear this so often, especially from young people. I can't forgive until I learn to forgive myself. And this is a, a common myth that gets uh, filtered in with forgiveness. And the myth gets repeated so frequently that I oftentimes find it comes down into even Christian thinking and behavior. One pastor writes this about this claim about self-forgiveness. 
He says to claim that I have been forgiven by God, but that I can't forgive myself, betrays that I don't understand and that I do not believe and that I do not appreciate the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says self-forgiveness, oh, it's a sinister attempt of the enemy to get us to depend on our own righteousness rather than the grace of God. Again, listen to, listen to what we are commanded to do as it relates to forgiveness. Paul says in Ephesians 4.32, he says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Right? There's, there's nothing in that passage where we are commanded to be compassionate and to forgive each other that says, Oh, and before you do this, before you do this critical act of moving towards the other, make sure to forgive yourself. Make sure to let go of whatever it is that is holding you back. Number five, fifth myth. I don't need to forgive if they're not repentant. If they're not repentant, if they're just going to sit in their sin, I don't need to forgive them. A common reason, especially in marriage, when husbands and wives don't forgive, it's because oftentimes they view forgiveness through what I call just a horizontal lens. And, and here's what I mean by that. They say, listen, doesn't the Bible say that I don't need to forgive unless my brother or my sister, my wife, etc., unless they repent? So as long as they don't repent, as long as they don't do what it is that I think that they should do, then I get to hold on to forgiveness. Maybe a passage like this comes to mind, right? Luke 17, 3 through 4, Jesus says this. He says, if your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them, even if they sin against you seven times in a day and then seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them, right? And so we might take this verse and we might say, see, like Jesus himself said, we don't need to forgive them unless they repent. But here's what we know we have to do with Scripture, right? Scripture consistently and constantly interprets itself. Right? So we, we move towards other scriptures to help us understand the fullest picture of what forgiveness is. And so we also go to Christ's words in Mark 11.25. And in Mark 11.25, hear what Christ says. He says, when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, which I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty all-inclusive, right? Anything against anyone, Jesus says, present active imperative, he says, forgive them. Forgive them. Don't wait. Don't pass go. Don't collect $200. Don't verify repentance. Don't do an investigation. Forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you of your sins. So what do we do, right? In Luke 17, it it seems as if Christ is moving us in a direction that says, listen, you don't need to forgive unless they're repentant. And yet here in Mark 11, 25, it's as if, hey, when you're standing praying and you have something against someone, forgive them immediately. What do we What do we do with that? One author writes this, he says, quote, then to reconcile these two passages, what we realize is that forgiveness is a vertical commitment that is followed then by a horizontal transaction. Forgiveness then is a vertical commitment that is followed by a horizontal transaction, meaning that the vertical commitment to forgive and to entrust the one who has sinned against you To entrust that individual to God is the key then that enables you to extend forgiveness to them in person when it is sought. It helps prevent superficial forgiveness where we only forgive in word, where we might superficially extend forgiveness to the other person before we have rightly forgiven them before the Lord. 
Number six, a sixth myth that oftentimes is pervasive in relationships is this, is that forgiveness is the same thing as reconciliation. Forgiveness is the same thing as reconciliation or forgiveness is the same thing as rebuilding trust. And so similar to what we do with forgiveness is forgetting or apologizing, we might say something like this. Well, I can't trust the person. I can't trust my mom. I can't trust this neighbor. I can't trust this friend who betrayed me. So therefore, I don't need to forgive them. Right? We say to ourselves, well, once they're trustworthy, once they're ready to reconcile, then I can forgive them. But friends, what we realize is that forgiveness is not the same thing as reconciliation. Forgiveness is an event. We'll see later today that forgiveness is a transaction which prepares the way and paves the way for reconciliation. One pastor writes this. He says that forgiveness is a willingness to try to reestablish trust, but that reestablishment is always a process. Right When we understand that forgiveness and reconciliation are actually two separate topics, it actually allows us to begin to make progress in our relationships because we realize that the first movement that we have to take is not necessarily rooted in our feelings or in subjective reasoning, but in the call of Christ on us to forgive and to forgive from the heart. Number seven. Forgiveness erases consequences. Forgiveness erases consequences. Spouses and and friends and people in counseling will tell me all the time, listen, I can't forgive them because then they're not going to have any consequences for what they did. They're just going to think that they can walk all over me. They're going to plow through my boundaries. They're not going to respect who I am. I'm just going to be this walking doormat. I I have to kind of hold on to forgiveness until they prove that that they're going to do something different. They They need some consequences, and me withholding forgiveness is exactly that. But again, this is where the words of Christ to us radically reshape us. Paul says in Galatians 6, 7, he says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Forgiveness of sin in any relationship doesn't remove consequences of sin, right? Oftentimes we, we realize in biblical story after biblical story that, that people can sin, There can be godly repentance, but oftentimes there are still consequences that take place, right? Our withholding of forgiveness as a consequence in and of itself is not something that's biblical or that Christ calls us to. Finally, number eight, and this one might be the one that kind of is is the one that typically presents itself for many of us who struggle with forgiveness, and it's this. Number eight, forgiveness is a feeling, or forgiveness should be easy, why is this so hard is probably the common refrain that I hear, especially from wives, from women in relationships who have been hurt, who have been betrayed, who have been sinned against by a friend or a close loved one. One of the reasons why people don't forgive is because we oftentimes associate forgiveness more with feelings. And so because I don't feel like I can forgive him, because I still feel the actual hurt, the sin against me, the sin done against me, therefore I don't, I don't need to forgive. But the dynamic that oftentimes happens there is that when we withhold forgiveness within those relationships and we hold on to that hurt, that hurt and that pain, right, it just continues to sit there and we actually, over time, things actually tend to get worse and not better. Forgiveness then oftentimes is granted before it is felt. Forgiveness oftentimes is granted then before it is felt. Well, friends, the appealing thing about these myths is that oftentimes they contain so many echoes of truth. But 
We know that the wisdom from above, right, the wisdom from above is first pure, it's peaceable, it's gentle, it's open to reason. We know we need the wisdom of God to reconstruct then our understanding of forgiveness. And so if you have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to turn with me to the passage that was already read for us in Matthew chapter 18. And here's what I'd love for us to do in the balance of the time that we have left in Matthew 18, 21 through 35, probably one of Jesus' most well-known parables, the parable of the unmerciful servant, the unjust servant. It's known by several titles. What we want to do by way of a story, I love stories, is we want to actually understand biblically then what is forgiveness. If we just spent time kind of saying this is what forgiveness is not, these are the myths that surround forgiveness, then what is it? What does it actually look like in real time? Not just in propositional truth statements, but what does forgiveness look like on the ground? And so we'll divide up our time here in Matthew 18, 21 through 35 along five headings. And I'll repeat them all as we get to them, but we'll see a question and an answer. We'll see the king's debt. We'll see two unimaginable acts. We'll see a stinging rebuke. And then finally, we'll see a stern warning. So a question and an answer a king's debt, two unimaginable acts, a stinging rebuke, and a stern warning. So we'll repeat all those as we get to them. Verses 21 through 22, a question and an answer. Good old Peter, right, our friend of the faith who always makes us all feel a little bit better about ourselves. Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Right? Peter poses a question to Jesus asking, how often do I have to really forgive someone? And I wish we were there because I think in some ways, Peter, you know, he'd probably be standing up straight and he's, he's really happy and quite proud of himself because if you're familiar with, with Old Testament rabbinic tradition, then you'll know that what Peter is essentially trying to do here is he's trying to take what was historic rabbinic tradition, which held that God only forgives people three times. You get kind of three marks uh, to mess up, and God will forgive you that. If you go to Amos 1.3, Amos 1.6, 9, 11 through 13, there's this little cadence where you sin against God two times, and then God forgives you on the third time. And it's this rhythm, but it's more done for poetic effect. It's not an actual number, right? But the rabbinic tradition, it held, hey, you can forgive people up to three times, and, and don't exceed three times, because then you're actually trying to be better than God, right? And, and so Peter, right, he's probably doing the mental calculations here. And he said, okay, like, so if I don't for three times two, like, we'll double it. Let's add in one for good measure. How about seven times, right? Like, Jesus, do I have to forgive someone up to seven times? And like Jesus so often does, right, he confounds conventional wisdom. And he tells Peter, somewhat shockingly, he says, I don't say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven, right? Which, if we do the mental methods, 490 times, right? Now, again, it's not that at time 491 that Jesus is telling us, okay, good, you, you're done, right? The idea is that, that this movement of forgiveness is supposed to be consistent and constant, that, that we're not numbering and keeping track of forgiveness. And so to further elaborate on that, because you can imagine that Peter's doing the calculations down, and he's like, okay, 491, 490, Jesus says, okay, let me do this. Let me tell you a parable. And he begins as he so often does, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven, which leads us to our second heading, the king's debt. The king's debt in verses 23 through 26. We're told, therefore, that the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. We're introduced to a king who wishes to settle accounts with a group of servants. This is a scene that would have been quite familiar to Jesus' audience. 
Moving on in the passage, Matthew continues the parable, and he says in verses 24 through 26 that the king, as he's beginning to settle these debts, and you can underline this if you do so in your Bible, it says, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he couldn't pay, the master ordered him to be sold, his wife, his children, all that he had in payment to be made. And the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Here in verse 24, we're introduced to the second character in the parable, which is this servant. And we're told that the servant owes the king 10,000 talents. Now, what I also want you to note in verse 24, right, what we underlined here is that the servant had to be brought to the king. He didn't willingly come, right? And I think that that's important for us theologically, right, even as we begin to work out the parable, right? We don't willingly come to the Father, but the Father draws us, calls us. The Father is the one who calls the servant to account. We're told that this servant owes the king 10,000 talents. Well, what do we know about a talent? A talent was the largest sum of money in the Roman world. 10,000 myrios, uh, where we get the English word myriad, was the largest number that the Greek language could express. So the idea is the largest sum of money or the largest, uh, the largest uh, sum of money times the largest number that we have to express. This is how much you owe, right? Now, to put it a little bit into perspective, the total talents of gold that were told in Chronicles that was used to build all of Solomon's temple, which was pretty nice from what we understand, 8,000 talents, right? So 8,000 talents to build all of Solomon's temple. And we're told that this servant, somehow, we don't understand, racked up 10,000 talents worth of gold, which we immediately begin to know, because we're familiar with parables, that this is meant to communicate a deeper reality, right? This guy owes an unpayable debt. This number is is like when my daughter comes and says, what is the biggest number in the world? And is it a trillion? Is it a billion? Is it whatever? And it's infinity, right? This is like you owe an infinity debt, right? That's what the king is wanting to communicate. On top of this payment, the servant, right, we can then understand how crazy it is in verse 26 that he says, what? Have patience with me. And I will pay you what? Everything, right? I think what's so fascinating here about the servant's response and what we all know because we realize that we're probably more like the servant than we are the master is when we come with all of these debts, right? Our, our first human instinct almost always is, listen, I can do it. I'll pay it back. I'll pay you back everything, God, right? This $10,000 debt or this 10,000 talent debt rather just Give me some time. Let me work out an interest rate, payment plan, banking house. We'll pay back everything. And the, the, the listeners, right, right? The listeners in Jesus' day would have immediately heard, you're crazy. You can't do that. How do you pay back an unpayable debt? The slave, the servant asked for this time to pay back everything. And again, what we realize is that this servant, right, he represents you and I. He represents people who foolishly think that we can work our debt off, which then leads us then to our third heading. Our third heading are these two unimaginable acts because in verse 27, which which for me really is kind of the pinnacle of the parable, we're told that out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now, it's crazy. That is unimaginable. In verse 27, we read something that is just, it's too good to be true, right? It's just too good to be true that this servant who owes an unpayable debt, that the master in one movement erases all of it. 
But uh, what I want to do in verse 27 is draw your attention to what's happening because, because it's happening in a story, right? We, we might miss how utterly significant what this master does. In verse 27, we actually see three critical movements on the king's part or on the master's part, which help inform and really build out our understanding of biblical forgiveness. Let, let me read it to you in a different version. In the Christian Standard Bible, Christian Standard Bible translates Matthew 18, 27, something like this. It says, Then the master of that servant had compassion, released him, and forgave him of the loan. So there, there's three movements. You can number it, one, two, three in the passage. First, he feels compassion. And this idea of feels compassion is just not like these, you know, like feel-good butterflies in your stomach. But it, it meant to feel compassion from the deepest part of your gut. It was the bowels of your body out of pity, right? And so what we, what I want you to know and what I think the master wants us to notice that forgiveness first and foremost is, is a movement from our deepest part of who we are. It is out of the deepest part of who we are. And we'll see later because we realize what God has done for us that we are moved to forgive. Forgiveness is not some cognitive exercise that we go through where we total up wrongs and then balance it out on the right with credit. Forgiveness, first and foremost, starts with a movement of compassion. We we see people as God sees us, and we remind ourselves of who we were, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And when we remind ourselves and we retell ourselves of that, that there's something about that gospel truth that plows into the deepest part of who we are, and it drums up compassion out of which we can forgive. We're told that not only does he feel compassion, but we're told that he is released from that debt. Now, this idea of releasing him from the dead, it meant to set someone free, to let them go, to be acquitted. It was actually used in Matthew twenty-seven fifteen to describe a prisoner who was being released during Passover, right? So it has more of a forensic legal connotation, right? That this, that this person now, they get to go free. They, they get to go free. They get to go back out into society. And we're told not only are they released from that debt, but in an amazing fashion, we're told that they are forgiven the debt. Feels compassion, released from the debt, forgiven of the debt. And what this word means in the Greek is that they are remitted the penalty of their debt. That debt is canceled, right? So not only do they get to go free, but it is as if that debt never existed. Are you kidding me? That's unbelievable. One commentator writes this, he says, forgiveness transcends finite human reason. The mere thought that one's entire sin account can utterly be eradicated, it is staggering. Yet it is quite clear that forgiveness of sin strikes at the very core of human need and experience. It speaks of guilt gone, remorse removed, depression disappearing, emptiness of life eradicated. What power there is in forgiveness, and it all comes abundantly from the gracious hand of God. Paul writes of this dynamic from another angle like so. So if we're hearing this maybe more in a narrative form, Paul puts it like this to us in more propositional form. He says, you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. 
It's in light then of such unbelievable forgiveness that what happens next also truly unimaginable, but for all the wrong reasons. In verses 28 through 31, the parable goes on. It says, but when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay off the debt. Now, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went, reported to their master, all that had taken place. We're told that the servant, immediately after being forgiven the unimaginable, unpayable, infinite debt, he goes out and he finds a slave and demands to be paid back. And and again, we got to put ourselves in, in the first century audience's ears and bodies. Right? A hundred denarii was no small amount. A denarii was roughly a day's wage, right? So a hundred denarii, that would have been roughly like three months worth of income, right? So it's not something to sneeze at, right? It's not just like, hey, like no big deal. Like, you know, somebody borrows a dollar from you, like at, you know, at the, at the vending machine. But it's also not something that could not have been realistically paid back right? This three months worth of income, right? It was significant enough to cause the owner of the debt a little bit of hurt, but it's also not something that could have just been completely let go. And so when the servant goes out, who's just been forgiven this hundred million infinite amount of debt now and is grabbing and choking, right? That language there is so helpful, right? He's not going out and just saying, hey, buddy, you got, you, you owe me a little bit. <laughs> let, 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 let's work this out, right? Uh, let's, let's set up a little bit of a payment plan, right? You know, he doesn't go IRS on him, right? And like, stop and fill up paperwork and put him into a repayment plan. No, it says that he seizes him and he begins to choke him. There's no compassion. There's no softness. There's no love. In a bit of deja vu, the servant responds almost to a T the same way that the original servant reacted. He says, have mercy on me. I'll pay back everything that I owe. But, right, at least in this scenario, it would have been realistic. Like the servant realistically could have paid off that three months debt. But here's the movement that I think the, that, that Matthew wants us to see in the parable is that what has happened here in the subsequent follow-up narrative, is that this son, right, this servant rather, he's no true son of the king. He's no true son of the master. Because if he was, he would not have treated this other fellow servant in the way that he does, right? He seizes him, chokes him, hauls the guy off to prison, right? These behaviors are meant to arrest us at the injustice of what has just happened as an audience, right? Everybody in the audience is supposed to say, like, what in the world? This is unthinkable. This is unjust. You just got forgiven the infinite debt, and you're, you're like haggling over a couple of months of income, right? One pastor writes this. He says, this kind of behavior seems unthinkable. It seems bizarre. It's hard to believe someone would ever, in a million years, act in such a way. And that is exactly the Lord's point to Peter and to the disciples. For a Christian To be unwilling to forgive another person is unthinkable and it's bizarre. This all leads then to our fourth heading where we see a stinging rebuke from the master in verses 32 through 34. In 32 through 35, we're told that the master summoned him, the servant, and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant? And let's get out, get out our underlining pens. As I had mercy on you, right? 
And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. Word gets back to the king. The servant is recalled. In verse 32, the master, the king, calls the servant wicked, rebukes him for being so unmerciful to the other servant. And what I want you to notice there in verse 33 is that the master's expectation of mercy and forgiveness is grounded in his own example of his own forgiveness. Do you see that? Right? He says, shouldn't you have had mercy on him? Because guess what? I had mercy on you. The ability, the motivation, the power for you to be able to forgive is not because you're a good person. It's not because you're a moral person. It's because I had mercy on you. And because I had mercy on you, don't you think in some ways that that would have formed you into a person who have wanted to do something similar? Right? Here's what the king doesn't say in verse 33. He doesn't say, hey, you should have mercy on your fellow servant kind of like I had on you. Uh, you should have mercy on your fellow servant, you know, sort of like I had on you, or like a kind of like tiny approximation, right? No, it simply says, as I had mercy on you. In the same way that God's free forgiveness comes to us through Christ, God is saying, the master is saying, listen, that's the way that I want you to do forgiveness. That's how I want you to model forgiveness and embody and live it out in your relationships. And friends, this is so critical for us to understand. Our motivation to forgive is always grounded and rooted and founded in God's forgiveness of us. If we depend on our ability to forgive simply because you're a really good person, you're a really nice person, you're a really forgiving person, right? Then there will reach a limit where somebody will do something against you whereby your own moral goodness, your own ethics, your own sense of, I want to be known as a forgiving person, it will crack, it will snap, it won't be able to hold on to the weight of such a thing. No, the thing that powers and motivates and, might we say, animates our forgiveness for others is the forgiveness that we receive from Christ. We're given then such a stark reminder of what is at stake when the king or the master in righteous anger throws the servant into prison until he should pay all his debt. I think it's a little bit of a hat tip from Matthew and in the parable because essentially what the master says is he says, okay, fine, do it your way. Right, You came in at the first part of the story saying, listen, pay back everything. I will pay back everything that I owe. Just give me some time. You know what? You want to do it on your own terms? Go do it on your own terms. You think that you can pay back this debt? Well, go for it. Go try. See how much money you can earn in prison with all of your family in prison. You want to try to do life apart from how I have enabled and given you to do life? Go for it. Try and do it apart from me and my grace. Which brings us then to such a stern warning, our fifth heading in verse 35. In verse 35, it says, So also then my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, Jesus closes the parable with a very stern warning to his audience. The stakes are set very high, right? It is clear from Jesus' teaching that this is no trifling matter, right? It's not, hey, like, you know, here's like an optional lesson. Take it or leave it if you want. Like, you know, my list of like ethics lessons, like here's like number five, like be a good person. It's kind of like, you know, if you do good, you it's okay. Right? That, that's not the sense that we get from Jesus in this parable. It is, listen, if you don't forgive your brother from your heart, my heavenly father will not forgive you of your sins. That's, that's pretty big, right? 
One commentator writes this. He says, quote, Jesus sees no incongruity, right? There's nothing that is pitted against one another in the actions of a heavenly father who forgives so bountifully, but who also punishes so ruthlessly, and neither should we. Indeed, it is precisely because God is a God of such compassion and mercy that he cannot possibly accept as his own those who are devoid of compassion and mercy. Right? Do you hear what he's saying? It is because God is actually so good and so compassionate and so merciful and that he moves towards us in lavish ways in pursuit that in the economy of God's redemption, God cannot tolerate someone who claims the name of Christ but says, listen, I don't want to be compassionate or merciful. I don't want to be forgiving. That's crazy. That's unthinkable. It's bizarre. Another commentator writes this. He says, whoever tries to separate man's forgiveness from God's will no longer be able to count on God's mercy. In so doing, he not merely forfeits this like the servant in the parable. Rather, he shows that he never had a part in it to begin with. God's mercy is not something cut and dried that is only received once. It is the persistent power that pervades all of life. If it does not become such, and if it does not manifest as such a power, then it was never received at all. Like so many other parables, the message for his audience is clear. If you do not forgive, you will not be forgiven by God the Father. Now, some of you, you're good, sensible, smart people, right? You might be saying to yourself, well, kind of time out, hold on. Uh, It sounds like then you're saying our salvation is dependent on us then, like on our good works, but... That's not what Jesus is saying or conveying at all. Rather, in the movement of the parable, what Jesus is saying and doing, what he's demonstrating is that a person that does not forgive demonstrates and witnesses to the reality that he or she has never truly experienced the forgiveness of God himself. Friends, forgiveness then is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Forgiveness is at the heart of our marriages. Forgiveness is at the heart of our friendships. Forgiveness is at the heart of all of our relationships. It is what it means to be a Christian. A few few summary thoughts as we try to tie this together. One commentator writes this. He says, talking about God's forgiveness as not only our motive and our model, but he says this. He says, quote, the indicative of God's forgiveness always precedes the imperative or the, hey, this is what you should do of our response. He says, people who forgive little tend to be people who believe that they have been forgiven little. People who forgive to the uttermost tend to be people who realize that they have been impacted and affected by the free forgiveness that they have received from God. Right? Let me just take apart that one, that one quote there for you, right? People who tend to forgive little tend to believe people that they have been forgiven little, right? And I would say that that has borne true, at least in my counseling experience, right? Self-righteously, we come and we say, well, I mean, I'm like kind of bad, but not that bad. You know, like, I mean, I go to church, I read my Bible, I go to Bible study, I do all of these good things. People who believe that they have been forgiven little tend to be stingy when it comes to forgiveness. Why? Because we are still somewhat partly dependent on our own self-righteousness. But if at the end of the day, friend, if you and if I understand, no, Who am I before the Lord and apart from the Lord? I am nothing. If I really get my true state before Christ, right? In Romans 5, Paul Paul doesn't have very good descriptions of who we were. He says you were weak, you were ungodly, you were an enemy, and you were a sinner, right? 
None of those sound good. But God showed us his love in that while we were still sinners, what? Christ died for us. Right? When we understand and when we remind ourselves of the infinite 10 million quadrillion trillion debt of sin that you have been forgiven by God, you know what that does to you? It begins to create a ground, a fertile ground in your heart to be forgiving of others. Can I ask you something this morning? Are you having a hard time letting go of something today? Are you having a hard time forgiving someone this afternoon? Here's, here's a question. Why? Just ask yourself and, and just be silent for a moment. Maybe picture that individual in your mind. What is so hard about forgiving them? Name the hurt. Name the sin. What evil has been done to you? What's to be gained then by holding on to that? What is to be gained by holding on to that hurt and that pain and that bitterness? Right? If we find ourselves in this spot, and I'll assume that in that brief exercise, all of us have something that comes to my mind because we live in a broken world with broken people. So people sin against us constantly. Can I recommend and remind ourselves then that what we need is the glorious truth of the gospel? Right? Because when we rightly understand our state and our position before God, it, it keeps us from pride and self-righteousness, right? It keeps us from thinking that we can do this on our own and we realize we have been forgiven much, which hopefully then moves you to be someone who forgives much, right? This forgiveness that we receive as a free gift of God's grace, then we can freely extend to others. We talk a lot, right, in culture and especially church culture about gospel-centered things, right? It's kind of like a really great way to sell books like gospel-centered worship, gospel-centered kids ministry, gospel-centered relationships. And we, we put gospel-centered in front of everything. And I think that's a good thing because we need to be reminded of the gospel. Sometimes we forget about it, right? What better way to have a gospel-centered relationship than to have the gospel at the center of your relationship? To actually reenact the story of the gospel every time you extend forgiveness. Isn't that quite remarkable? So a husband that carelessly sins against his wife and a wife in a moment of mercy and compassion says, oh, I forgive you, right? In that moment, right, what what happens there? That is, that's Shakespearean at its best, right? That is the gospel being lived out. It's reenacted on a small scale, which tells us of a forgiveness that's happened at a larger scale. Every time a a parent moves towards their child and says, hey, I messed up. I shouldn't have yelled at you. That was wrong. Will you forgive me? What happens? That child in that moment gets a living embodied picture of the gospel. Not just propositionally, not just uh, here's the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4, but he feels it. He sees it. He sees it in real time, right? Friends, that's this is getting us at the water's edge then of what we are talking about when we're talking about forgiveness. This gets us at the water's edge of what it means then to have the gospel lived out in our relationships. Every time two friends practice forgiveness, every time two spouses, a mother-in-law, a neighbor, a co-worker, every time you practice forgiveness, you are putting out into the gospel, you're putting out into the world a story of the gospel. And friends, it's out of a heart that understands the extent of all that we have been forgiven the magnitude of the grace that God has given to us that we move towards others in this most remarkable of ways. So let me ask you this afternoon, right? Who do you need to talk to, right? 
Who do you need to move towards this afternoon to seek forgiveness from? Or maybe the movement is, is more forward. Whom do you need to grant forgiveness to? Maybe you've been leaving something hanging out there. Maybe a friend has extended a hand to you or a spouse or a loved one and said, hey, will you forgive me? And you've kind of been doing a little bit of this, right? Maybe you uncross your arms and say, yes, yes, I'm happy to forgive you. May God help us this afternoon do this good work and glorify him in the process. Let's pray. Lord, we think about the simplicity of the Lord's Prayer where you uh, tell us to forgive those who trespass against us as we also seek forgiveness for our trespasses and sins. Lord, there's a reason why you have commanded us to pray in this way, because we are uh, sinful, forgetful, broken people. We need we need hourly reminders of who we are. Lord, those daily hourly reminders keep us humble. They keep us dependent on your mercy. So Lord, would you, in your great love, in your great mercy, out of your great forgiveness, would you help us Would you give us afresh your mercy and your grace to help us to be the most forgiving people there ever was? And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.